Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in to another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. And before we hop into today's episode with Dr. Jessica Drummond, who you are going to love, she is amazing and brilliant and provides so much essential and important information for women regarding health and nutrition and hormones. You're going to love the episode. And we actually touch on the concept of cycle syncing in the interview a little bit. And this is something I've been researching more and we'll be talking about more because it's fascinating and it's a way for women to work with our infradian cycles or our infradian rhythm, which is essentially our menstrual cycle, but it's, there's all of the other phases of the cycle that go on within this 26 to 32 day period and learning how to work within these cycles and how to understand a little bit more about what, what's happening at each phase really enables us to almost like hack into our system a little bit better. I don't love the word hack, but I think you know what I mean here, where it enables us to know like, okay, when should we kind of push ourselves to be a little bit more productive or to do harder workouts? Uh, When can we, you know, eat a little bit differently? When do we need to be focusing more on fresh foods? You know, when is it time to be a little more gentle or introspective with ourselves? And it's really fascinating. I've been looking into as many articles as I can find and trying to find some in some peer-reviewed journals to compile some information to share with you. I'm reading Elisa Vitti's book, In the Flow, and she offers a very comprehensive approach, and this is kind of her thing. So I've been definitely getting a lot of information from her, but there, there's a lot of info out there if you can dig for it. So it's kind of an exciting it's a new thing for me, so I'm telling all the women I know about it because I think it can really take the pressure off of us as far as how we how we go about structuring our our day and our lives. Because as Jessica and I talk about in this interview, being a, a woman in your 30s or 40s and managing work and exercise and kids and you know entrepreneurship or whatever it is, and particularly when you throw sobriety on top of that, especially if you're relatively new to sobriety, it's a very athletic life. And so to use all the tools that we can to be able to support ourselves hormonally and through the different phases of our hormonal cycle, I mean, what a gift. Like, let's take advantage of this knowledge that's out there and, and use it to support ourselves. So that's that's my new topic I'm really excited about. So you'll hear more on that. And then the uh, the ease experiment is coming up. That's going to be in the self-love project. It's five days of uh, short videos, manageable information, five to 10 minute videos that will happen live within the Facebook group. And we're going to talk about tools for regulating your nervous system and tools for starting to understand what it is to have healthy aggression and how to utilize and weave this into our lives and our structures. And we may touch a little on the hormonal component as well, but essentially the ease experiment is just going to be some manageable information that will build on itself day one through five to help you better understand your own nervous system and to leave feeling just a little bit different. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get into the episode today. I know you're going to love it. Hi, good morning. And thank you for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. Uh, Today, I'm very excited to announce that we have with us Dr. Jessica Drummond. 
And Dr. Jessica Drummond is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board certified health coach. She has over 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, facilitates educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally. She additionally leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. Dr. Drummond lives and works with her husband and her daughters between Houston, Texas and Fairfield, Connecticut. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm, your, your bio is so impressive um, and I'm, I'm very, I know that you're a physical therapist and you started working with uh, women's health and pelvic health. How did you begin to make that transition to, be, to starting to be a, a health coach and to do more nutrition-based I'm assuming physical therapy came first. Is that accurate in your bio? Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated from PT school in um, 1999 and I practiced exclusively in physical therapy for about uh, 10 years or so, 12 years. There's kind of like an overlap there where I started doing nutrition too. Um, and so what happened was I got sick after the birth of my first daughter and to recover, it really took kind of discovering functional medicine. And in doing so, I realized that there were some tools out there that I had not been made aware of in my Western training that were very simple, um, but required a lot of behavioral change commitment, right? So nutrition, adjusting my relationship with stress, changing how intensely I was exercising, things like that. And that helped me to recover. And I, I, what I wanted to do then was like, huh, you know, my clients with pelvic pain, my patients with pelvic pain have hormonal issues as well. And so, you know, let's talk, let's see, how could I bring some of that back to the clinic for my patients with chronic pain conditions who were hitting a plateau with just using traditional physical therapy strategies. Um, and so that's how I began to integrate everything. And with some of the, so <clears throat> with the integrative nutrition, is that part of functional medicine? Uh, yeah. Well, functional medicine is a perspective. Functional medicine is simply means that as a healthcare professional of any discipline, um, we, our aim is looking at getting to root cause healing rather than simply soothing symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean you don't soothe symptoms. Sometimes you have to do that as a bridge. Uh, but ultimately, what we want to do is optimize health from a biophysiological bio systems method. So is digestive system working in the best it can? Is the immune system working as optimally as it can? Musculoskeletal system. So it's a systems approach to root, root cause healing. That's what functional medicine is. And then clinical nutrition, using an integrative mindset, is really just thinking about systems of nutrition. So not just kind of like macronutrients, like how many carbs do we need or what's a serving of vegetables or things like that. But can we use the biochemistry of nutrition, micronutrients and macronutrients to, and sometimes herbs and things like that to um, help improve the functioning of those uh, key physiologic systems. Uh, thank you. That was a really great explanation of functional medicine. 
it's a path I'm definitely interested in as well. Cause I know there's specific trainings like for PTs and for health professionals across the board to go become functional medicine certified. So I'm always curious when people are using that term, if that means that they have gone through that process and they are like a functional medicine practitioner in that sense, or if it's more like this global sense of I address systems when I work. Yeah. Cause we train our, our healthcare professionals that come through our, uh, healthcare training in a functional medicine approach. Um, functional medicine is also pretty Western in the sense that, yeah, there's a look at, there's use of herbs and things like that, but it's, it's not, it's integrative, I guess, tips into more using uh, other systems like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and things like that. So that's, also integrated in functional medicine sometimes, but there's a bit of a gray area in terms of what is integrative medicine, what is functional medicine, because we're starting to see more and more good research coming out on, you know, that what used to be thought of as much more like fringe uh, mm -hmm. interventions that are becoming kind of, you know, integrated within systems that are considered Western. So I think the lines are all being blurred, but I think anyone who practices functional medicine simply practices from the standpoint of system by system, getting to the root cause healing. So that's the approach that we take in our professional training programs as well. I love that. I think it's, I don't want to say the only way to really treat, but kind of it is. I think it's one of the, the best ways to treat is to actually treat the whole person and to understand what's going on on a systemic level. I think so. I prefer that if we can, yeah. when we can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's one of the things with just practicing PT, especially if we're working with insurance is a lot of times it's very limited to like a certain body part. And it's somehow we're supposed to treat this one body part in like independent from the rest of the rest of the physical body and the rest of all the systems. It's uh, it's a really bizarre approach that makes no sense yet. It's still part of our, our biomedical model. Right. I mean, it's not even true that you can really do that because of no. course the blood supply to the knee is going to be inflamed. You know, <laughs> you're going to have inflammation systemically that you can't separate the knee from, for example. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious with nutrition and I know this is very independent and like we were just talking about very kind of system focused on the person, but I think right now there's so much information for people and there's so many different things. Uh, I see this in my own like circle of girlfriends as well as my patients where people are trying intermittent fasting or they're, you know, going complete paleo or some version. Um, are there any baseline strategies or techniques or tips that you would give for people who, who want to have a better understanding of how to support themselves through good nutrition? No. Um, <laughs> the answer to that <laughs> question is... I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question is no. There's not one perfect diet for everyone for everything or even for any diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So if anyone says like, this is the thyroid diet or the, you know, the, the knee pain diet, like run away. What about because the anti-inflammatory diet? Cause I hear a lot about that. Um, there are various anti-inflammatory diets. Um, yes, but again, there's not like one. Mm -hmm. So it depends on a lot of factors, like who the person is, their genetics, um, what 
coexisting comorbidities they're dealing with? Are they struggling with more of an autoimmune kind of picture or a more overactive inflammatory picture or both? Um, you know, what, what's their medical history? What's their genetics history? So there, that's not a question. It's sort of like saying, what physical therapy should people do? Yeah. And I think we don't look at nutrition like that because there, is, there are all of these little like niches or boxes of, hey, try this and you'll feel this way and try this and you'll feel this way. And it's no wonder that it's ironic with so much health and, and wellness information. It's so prevalent everywhere um, that it's people I think are more confused than ever and are more fatigued than ever, really. Like you don't see a lot of people that are just bursting with vibrant energy. I don't. I mean, some. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit just contact bias, right? I'm a lot of, around a lot of people who are super energized because they're Good. all, you know, taking care of their own health. But in healthcare, you don't for sure, yeah. because all of the practitioners are really treated like machine parts. So they're tired. Um, and, and in regular life, it's that way too. You know, people, there's a productivity standard to everything and, you know, we're kind of isolated and there's a lot of devices and a lot of working 24 seven and not really good lip service to just no, no more than lip service to rest. So absolutely. I think there are a lot of people who are struggling with inflammatory conditions, autoimmune types of conditions, chronic fatigue conditions, which is related to, kind of a burned out um, mitochondria, not great blood sugar stability, nutrient deficiencies. And so, yes, definitely in my work, uh, my patients are very fatigued and there's a lot of, you know, lack of vibrance because of the combination of chronic pain and kind of low level nutrient deficiencies that people can survive, but over time they just start feeling worse and worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm glad you're around a lot of vibrant people. That's nice. I am. Yeah, personally, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Plus, I have it a nine-year-old. You know, that's just yeah. chronic it's vibrance. A, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> chronic vibrance in children. It's a real problem we need to address. Yeah. Um, although I would say that, unfortunately, more and more kids are not. So yeah, we have to focus on. You know, kids should be exhaustively vibrant. Like that's a good thing. Um, but increasingly they're not. So I think that's even where we can begin, but yeah, mine is luckily. Good. Kids and puppies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm curious too about the role of hormones. I do you, I know you do a lot with hormones as part of your holistic approach. Um, and I've recently been, I've started reading Elisa Vitti's book. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She talks about the infradian rhythm for women and um, more how we're operating on this 28-day cycle versus trying to just do the 24-hour clocks of our circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm curious initially if you're familiar with her work and what you think about that idea of approaching for, for women within their childbearing years approaching tasks, life, and, and any of these changes, like from that perspective of a 28-day sort of cyclical, more cyclical rhythm of, you know, ebbs and flows of productivity and, and going inwards. Yes. I, I like that. Uh, Gretchen Lichterman writes a lot about this too. Um, let me see if I have her book right at my fingertips. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge on this topic I right now. Don't, so. um, I don't see it just right off the top of my head, but she her book is called 
something like uh, the 28 day. She has an app called the hormone horoscope, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, so here's what I think must have happened when, and I don't think it was conscious. I think it's just that men were in charge at that time and sort of still are. Yeah. And so, um, the, the kind of industrial revolution and like setting up like what work hours should be aligns really well with the male hormone cycle, which is a daily cycle. Uh, testosterone is highest in the morning. It drops off around noon and then it drops off once again at about, uh, it was either three thirty or four thirty in the afternoon, something like that. So that's a very, uh, that's well aligned with like a nine to five daily work schedule. For women, though, it's definitely um, aligns with the the monthly rhythm or kind of 26 to 30 days, depending on your normal cycle. Um, and I, I've been teaching about this for a long time in relationship to kind of periodizing your strength training and, and endurance training workouts. So I got the chance to go to China a couple of years ago and teach the health staff at the Olympic Training Center. Wow. And we were talking about how, and I've, you know, we've talked, I've consulted with some university programs and things that, and they're actually the U.S. women's soccer team used an app to train this way that was created from uh, some a research team in Canada. So I don't work too too much with female athletes, but I do consult in that uh, realm sometimes. And I think for and I think of pretty much any woman in her forties as a female athlete because, but honestly, women of all ages. You know, I look at my teenager. You know, there's so many things you're trying to do in a day. You've got to you got volleyball practice, you're trying to study for the SATs, you know, and, and women in their 40s are raising kids and trying to get promotions and traveling across time zones and caring for elderly parents and, you know, going to spin class. Like that is, a, is an athletic life, right? And so, and all in between those whole childbearing years. And what we're expecting of women, and actually of everyone, but certainly of women, is to be very, very productive all the time. Right. And so when you're thinking about even like strength training, endurance training, I have a number of videos on this on YouTube. I can send you a couple of the links where, you know, there are times when estrogen dominates. There are times when progesterone dominates. So you want to build muscle during some of those times. You want to build endurance during other times. And I think when it comes to work, it's the same idea. We have to be thinking about, okay, where are we in terms of, you know, like day five to day 15, when my estrogen is pushing highest and my testosterone is highest, this is when I'm going to be most masculinely productive. So like as a person who runs a company, you know, I have the, I have the lucky position of being able to schedule stuff kind of whenever I want, other than sort of when conferences are and things. So I'm going to be thinking like, this is a really good time for strategic development and, you know, creating a new program or, you know, things like that, which take a lot of kind of output energy. Then there's more like planning energy. There's more. And then, you know, sometimes, as I said, you don't get to really pick. So I might be in front of an audience of 500 doctors on day 26, I'm going to be really kind of scaffolding my energy, focusing only on that thing um, and not, you know, being maybe as social versus if I was doing that at a conference on day 14 or 12, 
then I have kind of even more power behind me. I still want to make sure I optimize that by getting good rest and balancing blood sugar with nutrition, uh, things like that. Estrogen also does things like make your body more sensitive to insulin. So you can get away with eating a little bit more sugar and things like that during certain times of the month. Or if you don't do that, you also can kind of get even more productive, you know, get more energy, get more performance gains if you're an athlete. So I think as physical therapists, the fact that we don't integrate all of this naturally as a part of, you know, our training with, with athletes contributes to things like reds relative and energy deficiency in sports. And we just can't expect people to function like machines, you know, the same way that if, if men were going to have to compete like in the Olympics in the middle of the night, their time, we would be really thinking about how to train for that. If a woman was going to be competing the week of her period or the week uh, right before, how are we going to really buffer her energy? Or if it happens to be even better on a time when she's aligned with her most estrogen and testosterone highest level, how are we going to use that? Or progesterone's at its higher level. How are we going to use that from kind of a performance standpoint? There are real benefits to each part of the cycle that I think we don't take advantage of. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a shame that this information isn't more widely available to like young women before they're menstruating as well as like I'm 43 and I'm just finding out about this and I'm a, you know a healthcare professional I'm well educated it's like where has this information been and clearly I've just been reading the wrong things um, so I'm really excited to hear about it and that was such a, a beautiful and succinct explanation for women like me who are really interested in this and would like to not just maximize productivity, but like be more productive at the right time and in, like also enjoy our lives more. Cause I think that's a big piece that just gets cut out of a lot of this talk. It's not about like, how do we enjoy ourselves? It's more like, what can we get done? Um, yeah. Yeah. But my, my question is, is like, what are some good ways to start tracking? Like, I know you mentioned Gretchen's app. Um, do you recommend like, or how have you worked with your clients? Do you recommend they start a calendar and just get to know their own cycle? Watch some of the videos that you mentioned. Yeah. I like any of the tracking tools. I think what's great is my daughter and her friends, you know, girls that are 15, 16, 17 years old are, you know, are starting to embrace period tracking. I mean, of course we didn't do this as we didn't even have smartphones, right? When we were right. 16 years old, this wasn't even well known. So the information is starting to permeate a bit. Tracking is becoming more normal. Um, and so there are tons of period tracking apps. I really like the Daisy as well. It's like a thermometer mm. that links in with your um, with an app, again, to help women see if they're ovulating. Like, how's your cycle looking? Fertility awareness is not just for contraception for people who you know, or are trying to use natural methods of contraception. I think fertility awareness is a great tool for just really understanding your cycle because every time we get the benefit of ovulation, you get progesterone that helps support sleep, sleep quality, calms the nervous system, you know, helps lower risk for cardiovascular disease. Like the more we're cycling normally for years upon years upon years, that builds up. And then as we hit postmenopause, um, you know, we've kind of got this bank of healthy years of cycling. 
That's a really nice way to look at it too. So we can actually help to prepare ourselves to maybe have an easier time in menopause, mm-hmm. which is something I think about a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really think the forties are a key time of prevention because if we slide into menopause trashed, you don't have, it's much, much harder to support your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, your stress resilience system. If you can do it while your ovaries are still active, it's just so much easier. It significantly reduces the risk of dementia. You know, if women show up at menopause having mild cognitive impairments like brain fog and word loss, word finding issues, things like that, losing their keys, they're like within five years, something like 80% more likely to start experiencing dementia. And they're very, you know, mid to late fifties. Wow. So we, and same thing with cardiovascular disease, it's a very big time for risk factors around heart health. So we, I think the forties, you know, late thirties, early forties is a perfect time to kind of set your body up to have a healthy older years without necessarily needing hormone replacement. Sometimes that can be useful, but, and, and if you do that, the earlier, the better. But if we skip this like time of really investing in our own health, which is super hard. Cause as we just talked about, that's when women are doing like a million things and they don't have time to like eat breakfast, never mind, you know, invest in their health, but it, it doesn't really take that much time. It takes a little bit of learning how to cook or using certain meal services. It takes prioritizing sleep. I really can't emphasize that enough. It mm-hmm. takes shutting down the devices and the Wi-Fi at, you know, even nine or 10 o'clock is better than nothing. A little bit of outside time, you know, a 30 minute outdoor walk every day would change the, would probably put half our hospitals, you know, out of business, which would be great. Um, and so just profound and so simple too, just to linger on that bit about a walk. And it's, yeah. I've, I do um, home health frequently. And that's like a huge chunk of what I do with a lot of my older women and older patients is just, let's get outside, interact with the natural world. Let's go. We walked around a, a, a local park yesterday with one of my women and she loved it. And it was so it's so simple, I think, something like that. And to, to hear you talk about how it can make such a lasting and profound change, not just for today and tomorrow, but in our years moving forward as we continue to age. Yeah. So it really is the, the kind of cumulative effect of those very simple things. And, you know, because women are so busy at this time, one of the things I really recommend they prioritize, and I've started doing this myself a couple of years ago, two minute, two sessions of 15 minutes. And Hey, if you can only get one, start there. It's very well supported in the literature that two 15 minute sessions a day of mindfulness or meditation goes a really long way. Mm. You know, mental health support lowers cardiovascular disease risk, lowers inflammation, which will lower cancer risk. And again, you know, if maybe that's a meditative walk, maybe you combine it with something like that. I'd use a a technique called Ziva meditation. There's tons of free apps. There's, you know, honestly, just sit and do literally nothing. Watch the birds in the backyard. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't matter, you know, but there are only two times uh, where two activities, which shut off kind of the vigilance center in a woman's brain. So I don't know about you, but 
do you ever feel this way that you're sort of always like your brain is just always active? I have to very, very consciously like bring myself because I do a lot of somatic work and work with the body-based experience because of that reason. Like that's why I got into it because I can't shut it off sometimes. That work helps a lot of like engaging my senses instead of just cycling through my brain. Yeah. So for women, that's a super common experience. We're like always sort of aware of like, when is the volleyball form due? When, you know, have I finished my patient notes? You know, there's a lot like just that's running through, right? Nonstop. So there's two things that shut that off briefly. One is meditation and the second is orgasm. Mm. So the more the merrier, you know, I work with a lot of women with pelvic pain. So of course we have to navigate that. But doing that a couple times, you know, the meditation twice a day, orgasm a couple times a week, every day, as much as you feel like you want to, is the only time we turn that off briefly. Another profound statement from Dr. Jessica Drummond. (laughs) (laughs) It is though. That's... I did this um, self-love summit a couple of weeks ago and, and spoke with a, a beautiful woman who's a coach over in the UK named Africa Brooke. And I asked her, like, what do you do for self-love? And her two things were self-pleasure and naps. And I just, yeah. I love that. I'm like, wow, this is, because I don't know. I don't, for me, I wasn't really thinking of like orgasms or self-pleasure as self-care or self-love. So it's wonderful to hear that from this very kind of medical evidence-based model, as well as this, no, this makes me feel good. Yeah, all of it. I mean, you know, and and I really do care about kind of the nerdy research of it. Me too. But the truth is that it works. And um, I think women really don't. I was working with a client the other day who is, who's on kind of a very strict food plan because of her pain condition. And we're navigating a few things. Like she's had a couple of flares in different ways. So she's like, well, do I need to, is it, le- you know, do I need to restrict more and more? And I was like, look. Once I start feeling that we're falling down a funnel of restriction, because mm. it's a useful tool to do what we call a nutrition, clinical nutrition and elimination diet. It's a great mm. tool for really figuring out like things that might trigger inflammation, things that might trigger like bladder pain flares, joint pain flares, headaches are a big one. Um, but, and, and so we do that for a short period of time, no more than a month and kind of learn what those food triggers might be. But when we start to get in a mindset where we're restricting more and more and more and looking for that thing, then I like, I halt it because it then is usually not about that. It's usually about like the stress around it, lack of healing of the digestive system. So it starts to become more and more sensitive, lack of healing of the immune system. So we actually shift to prioritizing really nourishing foods, bone broth, lots of herbs and spices in the cooking, you know, culinary herbs and spices, turmeric, garlic, ginger, uh, rosemary, things that, you know, we forget, we have to kind of put our, go elbows deep in the, in the culinary um, pleasure experience. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of thing, like we know from pain neuroscience that we've got to shift those neurotags. And one of the easiest ways, well, one of the hardest ways actually for women to do it, but works really well is allowing for more and more and more pleasure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, even I personally struggle with that. Like it, it takes, you know, there's so much like positive reinforcement around like achievement and 
hitting your productivity goals and, you know, hitting your numbers and stuff. But what really is deep healing is receiving support, connection, nourishment. Um, and so I do that. I start with food with that and things like tea. Like my husband bought me this thing that I have by my computer now that like keeps your tea at the right temperature. Oh, it's life changing because yeah, what, <laughs> is, what is that thing? <laughs> I don't know. It's a little thing. It's, I don't even know what it's called. Vobaga or something. It's like a literally like a little disc that like keeps my tea all day long at the right temperature. Stuff like that, like receiving something like that. And you think about it, like we do it for babies, right? One of my, my oldest, I mean, you don't do it for your second kid, right? My oldest kid had this, <laughs> had this like baby wipes warmer. And I was like, Oh, oh whoa. This thing. <laughs> for my own self. <laughs> right. Like have it in your bathroom. Why do we do this for ba- like, do what you would do for the, your first baby mm-hmm. <laughs> for yourself. Right. So it makes, it really does. That's the stuff that's really healing. And yet it's the stuff that we resist the most. Absolutely. I work with this concept of pleasure a lot too in the somatic work that I do because people, a lot of times will come to me with like, I have really bad anxiety. I want to use some of these techniques and like, how, and like, how do I be in my body and feel my anxiety? And I'm like, well, let's not start with trying to touch those sensations when you feel terrible. Cause then you mm-hmm. don't want to, you know, you don't want to practice it. So starting to learn and acknowledge and recognize like, when do you feel good? When do you feel most like yourself? When are you experiencing pleasure in like slowing time down almost, almost like savory food to really be in your body and like notice what's actually happening like what sensations go along with this this experience of pleasure and just like almost stopping the clock and just lingering and and the sense of pleasure to let our nervous system know like oh we can hang out here more this is this is okay we don't have to immediately jump on to the next thing which i think is how our brains are so trained to work of like oh yeah i'm fine i feel good and let me tell you about this other thing that's bad or that's wrong or that i want to fix and it's it becomes so exhausting so i love that you you brought up it's an easy but a very hard thing to do yeah and you know we perpetuated a bit i think in medicine well a lot um so as a person who works in chronic pain and i've been doing that for 20 years I realized at one point what I was doing to my patients was almost making it worse. Like, how's your pain level? When does the pain come on? What's the pain level today? Are you tracking Mm -hmm. your pain? And then I was like, no, I want you to say to all my patients, I want you to start carrying around a little journal and write in there when you feel a little better, when you feel good, who you're with, what are you wearing? What are you thinking about? What's the temperature outside? Like just start to pay attention to when you're feeling better. Because if we keep you know, again, applying that pain neuroscience model of danger in my body versus safety in my body, we have to bring a lot more attention to the safety piece, whereas medicine is always looking for the danger. Right. And I think with the negative bias in our minds, we just go right along with that. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I love what you said about not perpetuating that pain cycle. I've been more aware of that as well with my patients, because then it, it it's like brings pain right to the forefront. Um, and I like the idea of carrying a journal around too, where then people all, they, it's like they create their own data set of like, oh, wait, I did feel good. So they have to look at it and acknowledge, because I think that's difficult for some people too, where it's really easy to, again, skip over that, the time yeah. of feeling good. Um, so it's nice to train it that way with actually yeah. writing it down. With, uh, with some of your chronic pain and pelvic pain, I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit too, just 
because I think our, our discussion in our vernacular around pelvic pain still isn't like widely known for people. I think a lot of times when women have pelvic pain, they're not quite sure where to go with it or what to do with it, or maybe they feel like it's psychosomatic. So I don't know if you have any, um, I don't know, just any advice or any thoughts that you could share on the best ways to like some, maybe some causes of pelvic pain or how women can go about maybe trying to identify what's actually happening just to let them know they're not alone. This isn't a, you know, this isn't that they're crazy, which I think a lot of people, especially in the past would get from the medical community of, Oh, this needs, this is clearly like a mental issue, um, which it's you know, not. Right. Absolutely. So first of all, chronic pelvic pain is extremely common. Um, endometriosis, which is one of the most common causes, it's a disease process. It's kind of like a cancer, but it's benign. So it's not, the lesions aren't actually cancerous, but there are actual physical lesions, usually in the abdominal pelvic cavity on the bowel, on the bladder, outside of the uterus, somewhere on the, sometimes the ovaries or fallopian tubes, but can also be even diaphragm, lungs, you know, in the nose and the knee. So, so that's one condition that one in 10 people with uteruses have. So it's very common. There's also a lot of common pelvic pain around periods. So it's not normal for anyone to have killer cramps, you know, one Mm -hmm. or two days of very mild cramping or a little bit of fatigue is perfectly normal. Anything beyond that, if you have to skip work, school, any daily activities, that's not normal. So again, it's normalized, but it's not right. normal. So we can, we can help that. Um, sexual pain is very common. Postpartum pelvic pain is very common, whether it's from a tear or episiotomy or constipation is an underlying thing that contributes to pelvic abdominal pain. So these kinds of things are really common. You're not crazy. There, there's both biochemical and musculoskeletal physiologic, um, biomechanical reasons for, for all of these things. And I think there's so much that can be done. First of all, just recognizing that you're not crazy, that you don't have to just try to drink a glass of wine and relax, you know, mm-hmm. um, there are physiologic reasons that there are, that there is pain, you know, with intercourse, with, um, periods with just, you know, even in just inconsistent pelvic pain, um, abdominal pain, digestive pain, all of, there's a lot of organs, you know, as a pelvic PT, I'm always carrying around a pelvis. So, so think of like, look at how small this bowl is. It basically fits like two of my fists. You've got, you know, your uterus, your, your um, colon, your rectum, your bladder, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, lots of musculoskeletal structures, fascia, Um, So physiologically, there's a lot going on here, but also biochemically, if there's inflammation, you know, we can't just take the pelvis out of the body generally. So it's going to present there. Um, If there are autoimmune factors, you know, I've published some research on vulvodynia and it's autoimmune picture. We're seeing that more and more in uh, endometriosis and how it can actually contribute to both pain, but also infertility the autoimmune um, factors involved in endometriosis. And one thing that's challenging is a lot of, some of these pelvic pain conditions have an underlying genetic component. So, Mm. you know, it can even become normalized in the family where it's like, oh, every, you know, welcome to womanhood. Everyone in this family has horrible cramps and, you know, struggles with infertility and grandma had this. And um, 
we don't want to normalize that. You know, we want to start in middle school with teaching girls that it's normal to have pleasurable, uh, maybe not periods, but perfectly comfortable periods, non-disruptive periods. It's a great time to check in and rest and have a down day. Um, but it shouldn't be taking you out of your life because it's so uncomfortable. And same thing, pleasurable sex, ple pleasurable, you know, bowel movement shouldn't hurt. Like all of these things should be comfortable. They should be functioning and comfortable. Thank you for that. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what vulvodynia is? Vulvodynia is um, like a painful condition at the vulva. So the external genitals of a female are called the vulva. And so these vulvar lips and right at the opening, the vulvar vestibule is what that's called. There can feel like a burning or a sharp um, pain, which can come on unprovoked. It can happen at any point. Um, but it can also happen with intercourse, with putting in a tampon. So if someone's like always had rough gynecologic exams, like again, that's not like the most pleasurable experience, but it shouldn't hurt. Mm -hmm. um, tampon shouldn't hurt. Intercourse on penetration shouldn't hurt. So that's like what vulvodynia feels like. It's a pain at the vulva. Thank you. Just to clarify, um, with some of these, I'm going to jump a little bit because I'm curious, I'm always curious about kind of chronic stress and how it relates to autoimmune and what you've found in your work. And this may be a very broad topic, I understand that it is, but if you could speak a little bit to that, just the role, the even the hormonal role of being in chronic stress, um, which a lot of us are with this, tend to productivity and never being able to shut our minds off. Like how does that actually affect our hormone levels and our health, and is there a correlation with autoimmune that you've seen in your work? Yeah, so when the HPA axis is originally stressed, that's your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, it's your stress buffering system, but it shouldn't have to turn on like constantly, which it does in modern life. Elevated levels of stress hormone called cortisol cause kind of a breakdown in the lining of the small intestine. And you can think of that as sort of an internal skin. So about 80%, 60 to 80%, depending on the source you look at, of the immune system is kind of wrapped up in and around the digestive system, which makes sense because that's in, that's where we're most going to be exposed to things from the outside world. You know, our food's not sterile. We take things in, right, in the environment. And so... Um, that lining is broken down by excessive levels of stress hormone cortisol. Also, you'll see alterations in the microbiome. So there should be in the large intestine, a really healthy, robust, and diverse community of good bacteria, the so-called probiotics. There's also pathogenic biotic, you know, bacteria and other microbes and fungi and viruses and all kinds of stuff, but it should be well-balanced and, and sort of tipped in the direction of being organized by the good bacteria and other microbes. And so um, when you lack that resilience from a digestive standpoint, which can, which then there's sort of these feedback loops, then there's more inflammation, which then triggers more of a stress response. So when there's direct communication between the gut microbiome and the brain in a couple of different ways. So 
everything that we can do, all levers we can do to optimize digestion, immune function, and stress resilience, I think those three systems are really the foundation of health. Um, and so, yes, like our chronic stress is one thing, but let, let's say you can't modify your chronic stress or you had an underlying early life trauma that's left you with kind of that uh, adverse childhood experience, you know, in early life and teenage years or even around uh, the perinatal uh, period. Those are big kind of um, risky times that make your resilience to stress generally lower. And you haven't had the opportunity yet to kind of address all of that trauma. Then we can still do other things to optimize immune and digestive health. That's when really, I kind of like to think sometimes is leading with body mind medicine instead of mind body. Cause sometimes when you're, you know, you're exhausted and traumatized, like let's start the physical mm -hmm. stuff is sometimes easier to do. Absolutely. You know, let's start eating healthier, let go of the sugar, add the nutrients, add some supportive supplements to the digestive system and immune system. Adaptogenic herbs can really help balance the stress system. So doing that, I think helps make you stronger to then address the anxiety and the jitteriness and the depression that can go along and do the trauma work. Um, so those things can happen concurrently, but I think it's fine to work on getting your body physically resilient. And there's lots of levers we have nutritionally to do that. I like that approach a lot because I do work a lot with, um, with trauma and, the approach that I take in the sort of somatic experiencing approach is really just to like be very titrated and to not go in and like, let's go right to the heart of the trauma and flood your system. Cause that's ineffective and, and kind of cruel, I think. Um, but I like the idea of really supporting the physical body uh, because I think in some people, even that real gentle titrated approach can go very nicely with having more of this structural support. It's like it, I think that lends, lends a body to being a little bit more um, like broadening the container and making the container a little bit more safe to go in and then address some of those past traumas. Yeah. And I think building a, like a supportive, literally like a web of support of other humans, Yes, uh, which might be just one, two, three. It's not like everybody in your universe knows exactly what you're doing in terms of your healing, but to just have a couple of people that you can trust that might make you the food. You know, I've had patients who like they're teenagers, like didn't feel like they knew what they could do to help. But then once they have like a cookbook of recipes that mom can eat, you know, they can participate or your boyfriend or your, your girlfriend or your spouse, you know, the family also struggles when someone's really struggling with a health issue. So having food that you can make or doing exercises together or everyone shutting off the show and going to bed at the same time. And that really helps the person who's doing also the more deeper, whether it's somatic or psychosocial work around mm -hmm. stress resilience. Yep. I'm glad you said that because I think community and support, especially within the, the people that we live with and the family structure, if that's, if that's what that looks like, it's hugely important. I think without mm -hmm. that, it's really, really, really hard. Not impossible, but much harder. Yeah. So as we're kind of getting close to the end of our time, I'm curious if you have any advice for people because there is so much information out there and it's so easy to get maybe information that isn't right for us or bad information even. 
are there tools that you would advise people to use as far as like exercising discernment in, in that? Is it not to listen to any of it? Is there any way to find out if there's anything that's good? Um, I think look at the credentials of who you're learning from, yeah. you know, are they a health coach who's done more than just a weekend training? Like there are a lot of good programs that there's not one great, you know, there's not really one yet body of training because for some things, certified nutrition specialists are better health coaches for other things, registered dietitians. So like, it kind of depends on that person's biases and training, but that's at least a baseline to start. Um, second would be, are they promoting an idea that like worked for them for one thing? And they're like, everyone who needs to lose weight, do this. Mm -hmm. That's usually a, another thing to not follow. So like even in our book, in my book, Outsmart Endometriosis, there's a pathway for figuring out your food plan for endometriosis, if you're someone who struggles with chronic pelvic pain or especially if endometriosis, but there's not like a prescriptive diet. There's a, there are tools to help you figure out the right program for you. And it's more challenging because we all want the printout <laughs> diet. Step-by-step -step guide. Even better, we want someone to just eat it for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> digest it for us. <laughs> um, or even better, just cook it at least and just bring it to your house, right? But it just doesn't exactly work that way. So if there's some flexibility in the plan, there are some guidelines around, you know, making decisions about your food that they help teach you, that's probably a good thing. It is also probably good if the person is really focused on kind of a specialty area, because mm. then they're able to to keep up with the literature, keep up with how things change. If they have a growth mindset that's flexible around one specialty thing, like I am not an expert in seizures or Parkinson's disease. Like I know that a ketogenic diet has some good data behind it for people with seizures, but it's not what I do all day, every day. So that might change and I wouldn't necessarily be aware of it. I just sort of generally learned it in my nutrition graduate program. Right? So you know, if you have pelvic pain, I'm your girl. But if you have, you know, chronic migraines, maybe not. There's some things that, that overlap with that. But, you know, focus on people that really sort of specialize because they have the ability to then keep up with the literature. Um, but And, and that, that specialize but are not rigid, that like this is the plan. Also people that take into account that people's individual genetics are different, but also their life is different. Um, you know, so we have different stressors and pressures and things like that. And then I would say that, so that's kind of the discernment. Make sure the people you're listening to are humble about that, that they're not just promoting like X, Y, Z is one solution. Um, and then I would say that your best bet is obviously going to be working with a professional or and or team but there's a lot you can explore on your own with quality books and online resources with a lot of this stuff especially if we're just talking about food and movement and sleep it's difficult to make it much worse on your own <laughs> so <laughs> if you make it a little worse like when i was healing myself and i, I didn't know what i was doing at all you know, I was a physical therapist. So I was like, I was having a horrible time sleeping. So I was like working out as hard as I possibly could every day. Mm -hmm. So I would try to get tired. Right. 
but my symptoms were getting worse and worse. So if like you're moving in the wrong direction with the stuff you're doing, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Don't keep doing that. Yeah. So yeah, That's good. because That's really good. with, with anything like this, you should be noticing either not much changing or some improvement within three to four weeks. If things are starting to move in the wrong direction or you're not really getting an improvement, then that's kind of a guideline. That's a good guideline too. And it's, it's a short enough time period that I think most people are willing to try some new things for a period of three to four weeks where it becomes less intense of, I need to do this new thing forever and it's hard and um, which will stop some behavior change before it even starts. Mm-hmm. But I think those are all great guidelines and I love the idea of, of kind of experimenting on ourselves in a, in a well-informed manner, but like, let's try one or two new things and see in this three to four week span, do we get a difference? So I appreciate it. And don't try like everything all at the same time. Cause then you don't yeah. know it works. Yeah. <laughs> too many variables. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for um, Dr. Dr. Drummond, uh, for coming on today to, to chat with me. You're just a wealth of information. And I love, I just love hearing about all of the, I love the approach that you have. It's so holistic and also so evidence-based and so backed by science. It's very exciting for me. Uh, do you thank have, you. A, yeah, thank you. Do you have anything that you're working on that you would like to share with people? Or I'd like to give people a little bit of a platform at the end, if you have anything that you'd like to put out there? Sure. So um, first of all, if you do struggle with endometriosis or any kind of chronic pelvic pain, you would definitely benefit from reading the book. You can learn more about that at outsmartendo.com. We also have lots of professional training programs and we do work with patients through nutrition and health coaching platforms um, at our website, integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. And the best kind of social media to follow us at would be Instagram at women's health. No, sorry, at integrative women's health. Um, you can send me messages there if you need to. And we do have a couple of Facebook groups, um, menopause nutrition, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum nutrition, and endometriosis nutrition that anyone can join. So if you're kind of in any of those time frames, we're happy to support you there. That's wonderful. And I'll make sure I get all those links and post them in the show notes for anyone who wants to check any of those out. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, it has. <laughs>